Good evening. Welcome. My name is Mark Riley. This is the Mark Riley Show. Glad you're with us. And we've got a host of stories to talk about. Uh, since we're not a sports station, we're not going to talk about, for those of you who are listening in New York, we're not going to talk or try to dissect why the Yankees lost last night. Suffice to say, they did lose. And uh, sad. But there's always next year. That's what they used to say in Brooklyn. Now they can say it in the Bronx as well. You know, uh, interesting stuff going on in the world. Very, very interesting stuff. So let's get right to it, shall we? Surely. The United States is going to release 6,000 inmates from federal prisons beginning at the end of this month. This is according to the Justice Department. It's an effort to ease overcrowding and roll back some of the penalties that were given to nonviolent drug dealers in the 1980s and 1990s. As many of you know, those penalties in many cases were harsh, to say the least. This is going to be the largest, one of the largest discharges of inmates from federal prison in American history. Now, you think, like, maybe the president's going to get flack about this? Well, maybe not so much. About one-third of the inmates who are going to be discharged are undocumented immigrants who will be deported. Uh, because many of them were convicted of significant offenses, according to the New York Times, President Obama is unlikely to be criticized quite as sharply for their release by those who have, who have objected to past deportation. Now, the senior legislative counsel at the American Civil Liberties Union, Jesse Lynn McCurdy, says, quote, today's announcement is nothing short of thrilling because it carries justice. Far too many people have lost years of their lives to draconian sentencing laws born of the failed drug war. People of that color, I'm sorry, people of color, have had to bear the brunt of those misguided and cruel policies. We are overjoyed that some of the people so wronged will get their freedom back. Law enforcement officials, to no one's surprise, are concerned. They're worried because of an overall increase in homicides, and their fear is that many of the freed convicts will be unable to get jobs and will return to crime. Now, as far as I can tell, they're not releasing violent people convicted of violent crimes to the street. But one thing it does tacitly say, and, and it's in this article, is that the drug war has failed. Absolutely, positively failed. An epic failure, considering the amount of money, and I'm not sure how much it is, I'm sure it's in the billions, considering how much has been spent to both try, convict, incarcerate drug offenders and to try and interdict drugs on their way into the country, assuming they're not manufactured here, the plain fact of the matter is the United States has lost the drug war. That does not mean, however, that the drug war is over. People will continue to be locked up for, in some cases, extended periods of time. Remember, this is federal, the federal prison system, not the state or local. And in some jurisdictions, man, you know, busting people for weed or whatever, that's a cottage industry. That's how they make some money. Bust them, lock them up. 
And in, in, in some cases, lock them up for extended periods of time. And, you know, this bothers me because on the one hand, you got two states, Washington State and Colorado, that have actually legalized the recreational use of weed. And in other states in the same country, people are getting locked up for weed. In some cases, possessing relatively small amounts of weed. Of course, not all these people who are uh, being freed were convicted of marijuana offenses. Uh, And it's interesting to say that, uh, you know, the extent to which the prison system, the federal prison system, has been able to at least partially rehabilitate some of these folks is going to be interesting to measure. Because, remember, part of incarceration is supposed to engender some form of rehabilitation. Now, the United States, and I'm sure some of you have heard this before, the good old U.S. of A. has a quarter of the world's prison population. Prison spending accounts for one-third of the Justice Department's budget. Now, last week, just last week, a bipartisan group of senators proposed a sweeping overhaul aimed at reducing mandatory minimums and winning early release for those serving sentences disproportionate to their crimes. Now, when they talk about disproportionate, remember that people until not that long ago were receiving harsh, harsh sentences for possession of crack cocaine, while people who possessed powder cocaine were not treated nearly as harshly. Now, I don't know. I mean, this is bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans talking about doing something about this. We shall see. If it is part of an overall uh, reformation of the justice system, and at the same time, hopefully, a reformation of the prison system as well, with an eye towards rectifying some of its larger problems, then this is a good thing. This is definitely a good thing. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to see how the public reacts to this. You know, I'm not, when I say the public, I'm not talking about people who post comments to newspaper sites or Facebook or any of the rest of that, because that's, you know, anybody with a computer can do that. And it's not always indicative of public opinion. Sometimes you get lucky, but not always. We shall see how this turns out. So I'm sure many of you know about the horrific massacre at that community college, Umpqua Community College in Oregon. And as President Obama, I think, stated so eloquently, the country tends to go through the motions when these kinds of things take place. When I say goes through the motions, everybody brings their hands and they attribute it to mental illness or they attribute it to one thing or the other thing or the other thing. But doing something about keeping guns out of the hands of people that should not have them 
That is something else. Because there are people who stand on the Second Amendment forever and ever. Amen. Ben Carson, presidential candidate, famed neurosurgeon, uh, had some comments to make about the Oregon shootings, the Oregon massacre, a horrific massacre. Ten people died, including the gunman. And Ben Carson goes on television. You know, I, I don't, I, for the life of me, I do not understand how some political aspirants are quite as tone deaf about certain things as this guy is. He says on CBS this morning, quote, I want to plan in people's minds what to do in a situation like this, because unfortunately, this is probably not going to be the last time this happens. From the indications I got, they did not rush the shooter. A shooter can only shoot one person at a time. He cannot shoot a whole group of people, so I, the ideal is to overwhelm him so not everybody gets killed. What the deuce is wrong with you, Ben Carson? What is wrong with you? First of all, automatic weapons can kill numbers of people in the bat of an eye. That's number one. But this whole, why didn't they rush the shooter thing? I, You know, you wonder if Ben Carson would seriously think about rushing the shooter if he was in a similar situation. First of all, he makes it sound as if all these people were bunched together and could communicate with one another, one another and say, well, hey, guys, let's, let's get it. Let's take him out. Let's rush the shooter. He said, and somebody else said this after one of these massacres as well, quote, I would not just stand there and let him shoot me. I would say, hey, guys, everybody attack him. He may shoot me, but he can't get us all. Well, he got 10, fool. 10. And Carson, by the way, doubled down about this. Only one that defended him, ironically enough, was Donald Trump. Quote, Ben Carson was speaking in general terms as to what he would do if confronted with a gunman and was not criticizing the victims. Not fair. That's a tweet from Donald Trump. Seems to me he's criticizing the victims. Seems to me that Ben Carson has never been in this kind of a situation. Thank God neither am I. But I would never, ever, ever say that the victims were wrong for not rushing the shooter. Not unless I knew for a fact they were in a huge group and had the ability to do so. And I don't think Ben Carson knows that. But yet, he runs his mouth. Even Lindsey Graham wouldn't stand with Ben Carson on this. Quote, I think Mr. Carson has no idea of what he would do. Car uh, Lindsey Graham, of course, has been in the military. He says, I've been in the military for a very long time. I've never been a frontline soldier by any means. But I can tell you this, you don't know what's going to happen. Like during the Holocaust, you're overwhelmed. All I can say is that's not what we need to be saying as leaders of the country. One thing in a lifetime, I agree with Lindsey Graham about. He's right. And I don't, I, Ben Carson 
eludes me that way. How in the world? See, because rather than talking about taking guns out of the hands of people who would do this sort of thing, whether they're mentally ill, whether they're racist, whether they're Islamic fundamental, it doesn't matter. The people killed are equally dead. And they died by the gun. So you mean this country, the greatest country on earth, can't figure out how to get guns out of the hands of people who should not have them while protecting the rights of somebody that wants to shoot a squirrel at 150 yards. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that may be a little harsh as far as you know, gun folks are concerned. But I, I quite frankly, and I've said this before, I have never really found a justifiable reason for having, much less using, a firearm. And, you know, some people, well, you know, if, if, if some of the teachers there had had guns, maybe the guy would have gotten taken out. Come on, man. Come on. It is lunatic speculation to talk that trash. Lunatic speculation. And ben, ben Carson, I don't understand how you can seriously think you should be president of the United States when this kind of crap comes out of your mouth. I really don't. To me, it makes absolutely no sense. But, you know, I mean, that's just me. Now, I'll tell you who else has a problem with the nation's response to this massacre. And it's not just me. It's Australia. I got this very interesting article. Australians are disgusted at the American response to the Oregon gun massacre. Now, in 1996, a gunman killed 35 people at a tourist destination on the island of Tasmania in Australia, using a semi-automatic rifle. Australia, unlike the United States, responded by reforming their gun laws. High-powered rifles, shotguns were banned. Uniform gun licensing requirements were imposed for the guns that were still legal. They also implemented a buyback program, which resulted in the destru- excuse me, destruction of more than a million firearms. In the last 19 years, that would be since 1996, folks, there have been no mass shootings in Australia. Mass shootings being defined as people, five or more people being shot. Now, what's interesting about this in Australia is that it was not the subject of partisan rancor like it is here. The effort to reform the gun laws there was led by John Howard, who, by the way, was a pretty conservative prime minister. And it's, it's amazing, absolutely amazing, that if you just go back three years, hundreds of people have died, thousands have been injured, and yet nothing from elected officials, We hear the usual bleeding from the gun lobby. (laughs) You're trying to take away our rights. It's the government trying to take away our Second Amendment rights. 
it's interesting that uh, some people think the United States ought to, and this is heresy here, ought to rethink the Second Amendment. It's an editorial in the Brisbane Times. I'm going to read this to you verbatim so you understand how other people look at us and our fanaticism, our love affair with the gun. At Oregon last week, four guns were recovered, three pistols and a semi-automatic rifle. Did Mercer have the rest of the shooter have the right to bear those arms? Yes, he did. From that question and answer flows the grim crimson tide. And from that flows, as always, the errant nonsense from the NRA and those of like mind. The guns are good. The guns are not the problem. The president is politicizing the issue. He should be. Indeed, he has, with limited success. However, such is the web of lobbying, money, political support, and sway interconnected with the myriad legal jurisdictions that we despair of seeing radical progress. Yet we must condemn. America prides itself on being a light in the world for democracy and liberty. Yet within its borders, it is armed to the teeth. This is a tyranny born on a historical anomaly that must end. Surely, if the phrase land of the free stands for anything, it is embracing the freedom not to have to live in fear of the gun. Now, that's interesting. You know, I I mean, most people pay no attention to the Australian. And Australia is not a perfect country by any means. But you see, in response to a mass shooting that left 35 people dead, they did something. They did something. We have hundreds of people who have died in the last three years. What do we do? Absolutely nothing. Now, I, I shouldn't say absolutely nothing. Governor Cuomo passed the SAFE Act, got the SAFE Act passed here in New York. There are people who want to repeal it. And I have yet to hear a logical explanation from people who are gun owners or support the Second Amendment as to why the country must tolerate guns getting into the hands of people who would commit mass murder. And, ah, come on, man, don't, 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 don't put it like that. Nobody supports that. Yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. We support it. We may not want to support it, but we do. All of us support it. Because we can't get up the nerve, the gumption, the chutzpah, as it were, to change it. It's not impossible. I don't know why people would think it's impossible. But politically, in this country, it may well be impossible. This hits home for me because, of course, the Newtown massacre took place in a town where I grew up. I attended the Sandy Hook Elementary School, as I've told people on many different occasions. That's just a horn in the background. Don't pay any attention. Um, and it, it, it hits home because I went up there the night that massacre took place. 
and saw the faces of people who were so shocked they could barely speak. The loss of life and of children in Sandy Hook's case, but you know, these are college kids, junior college kids, community college kids. And yet we do nothing. We don't have it in our hearts to do a thing. What's on your mind? Give me a call. 1-888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. We're going to shift gears a little bit. We've talked about that Oregon gun massacre. Now we're going to talk about something that is... I mean, it's tangentially related to the sports world, but it is something that I am completely baffled by, and maybe some of you all can help me with this. Talking about fantasy football. I don't know how many of you all play it. I do not. I wouldn't play it if you put a Glock on that. I won't say it. won't put it that way. It's a bad analogy. But I don't play fantasy football, nor do I have any intention of playing fantasy football. But it's been shoved on the front pages of the newspapers because there's a major scandal that's erupting in fantasy sports. Part of this scandal has erupted because, quiet as it's kept, fantasy sports is not regulated. Now, people who play fantasy sports assemble teams with real athletes. And it turns out Day before yesterday, the two major fantasy companies, FanDuel and DraftKings, were forced to release statements defending their business's integrity after what amounted to allegations of insider trading. That being that employees were placing bets using information not generally available to the public. Well, that's a fact. That's not allegations. That's a fact. That's what one guy did. A guy, a mid-level content manager at DraftKings, won $350,000, not from DraftKings, but from a rival site, FanDuel, the same week. And they released data. This guy had access to data before week three of the NFL season. He had access to data that was not available to the public at the time he put together his team and placed his wager. Now, my first thing about this is what exactly is different about this in terms of this versus gambling, which, by the way, is illegal in most places in the country. And the NFL, until very recently, had as, as a stated intention, keeping it that way. I mean, you can bet in Vegas if you're out there. And, of course, there have been football pools where people bet money. But this fantasy football thing has blown up. It's a multi-billion-dollar business. A multi-billion-dollar business. And, of course, you know, there are usual statements written by, I assume, some well-paid flack. 
that, you know, we're, we're upholding the integrity of our business. And, you know, there's single response here. The two big fantasy football sites, FanDuel and DraftKings, their response was to say that their employees could not play fantasy football at any other site. Well, ain't that grand? Ain't that wonderful? Because, see, they don't want to be regulated. Trust me. These people don't want to be regulated. And the amazing thing about this is this started a few years ago as, you know, uh, a very informal thing. Fans playing against one another for fun over the course of a season. They would assemble these teams and they'd score points based on how the players did in actual games. That's how it started. But, like, recently, they set up FanDuel and DraftKings. They've set up daily, weekly uh, games based on a similar concept. And it's gotten to be such humongous business. And they've spent so much money, these two sites, on sporting events. In other words, on ads and sporting. You can't turn on some of the sports channels without seeing ads for one or the other or both. And it's amazing. It's absolutely And this, in the story that I have in front of me, the thing that was most amazing, because, see, when this kind of thing happens and, and it blows up like this, of course, people in Congress want to hold hearings because that's what they do. <laughs> Congress, you know, the sun rises in the east, something happens, Congress holds a hearing. Whether it's Benghazi or this, they hold a hearing. And it's interesting. Uh, there's a research company that studies the fantasy football industry. They say that the daily gains will generate around $2.6 billion in entry fees and grow 41% annually. So that by 2020, it'll be $14.4 billion. Now, this is the part that really amazed me, stunned me in point of fact. Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys, he's the guy, he's the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots, both have stakes in DraftKings, which, by the way, just struck a three-year deal with the NFL to become a partner of the league's international series in Britain. You know that the Jets just played in London? Well, DraftKings got a little piece of that. Of course, sports betting is legal in Britain, we should say that. DraftKings has also tapped into hundreds of millions of dollars from Fox Sports. And FanDuel has raised similar amounts from Comcast and NBC. I guess they're one and the same now. They probably are. But you see, when you got two football owners involved in this, owners, then you got a problem. It's unregulated. But now they have inserted themselves so deeply in this world. you got TV and radio programs devoted to fantasy football. Which, you know, the first time I saw one of them or heard one, I was baffled. I was like, what are you talking about? Are you, are you kidding me? Now, you know, whatever floats people's boat, don't matter to me. You want to gamble? Gamble. 
You want to spend money on entry fees to play fantasy football so you can pick this one or pick that one and see how they do? Fine. I don't care. But I would argue that there are so many more things in the world that ought to command our attention and perhaps our effort to change that fantasy football ought to pale in comparison to some of these things. Hunger, poverty, income inequality, all of these things. And I'm not saying people have to, you know, like live their lives like hermits or something. I'm not crazy. But when something like this blows up, and when, because it wasn't regulated in the first place, see, it's one thing to jump up and say, well, it needs to be regulated. Okay, fine. Why didn't you do it before it got to this point? Why didn't you say employees cannot use proprietary information to bet on these? Because, they see, that's the thing that everybody gets scared of. When you call fantasy football betting, which it is, it's gambling. But people don't want to call it that. Oh, it's all in good fun. Oh, I, and I heard somebody say, I guess it was on a sports talk station or something. There's a difference between gambling and fantasy football is that fantasy football demands a certain level of skill. And I'm saying to myself, wait a minute. You mean if you play poker, you don't have to be skilled in order to win? Are you insane? But that's the rationale. That's the logic. And, you know, they say uh, that regulation may well follow. But, see, by the time Congress gets to it, it'll be time for another recess. So they ain't got to worry about it for a while, maybe sometime early next year. But by then, people will have forgotten all about it because the presidential sweepstakes will have begun. And people will be focused on whether Donald Trump is going to stay in the race and whether Hillary Clinton really is going to win the Democratic nomination this time. And this little fantasy football brouhaha will be a tempest in the teapot because there's too much money involved. You've got networks. You've got NFL owners involved in this. And, you know, my thing, what are you, crazy? <laughs> what are you, out of your mind? Maybe, maybe I'm the one that's out of my mind. I just think it's so much foolishness. You know, I mean, I guess every now and then, I got to be honest, every now and then, I think about, you know, what would happen if I put in a little bit of money and suddenly, you know, every all the stars were in alignment and I suddenly won a million bucks. Or if I went down and played the lottery and suddenly I was a, you know, big jackpot winner. But those are thoughts. I've never done it. I have never done it because... My father told me when I was at a relatively young age, if you're going to gamble on something, gamble on yourself. As a result, I, you know, the one time I did gamble, okay, and it was, it was by accident. I happened to be in Vegas for a convention, and a friend of mine was playing one of those machines, and he had to go to the bathroom. So he gave me a bunch of quarters. I said, go ahead and play until I get back. And sure enough, I threw the handle down. 
I forgot what it was, how much snake eyes. I don't even know because I'm so stupid about gambling. But next thing I know, there's a bunch of quarters shooting out the machine. And they turned, you know, I, I, I took them in. I didn't want nothing to do with it. And they gave me, I think it was around $50 that I had won. So when the guy comes out of the bathroom, I said, yeah, oh, Robinson, rest his soul. Uh, you won 50 bucks. He wouldn't take it. He said, no, nah, man, you won the 50 bucks. You were playing the machine. I said, what is this, some kind of et- etiquette? <laughs> I don't know. But I, I just, I find it so much foolishness when there are so many other important things to deal with. My God. But that's just me. 27 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Our number again is 1-888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Give me a call. Tell me what's on your mind. You ever play fantasy football? You ever had any interest in fantasy football? Because I got to be honest, I never have. We're going to take a break. We've got a bunch of other things to talk about, including that strike, U.S. airstrike, on a hospital in Afghanistan. It was a doctor, Doctors Without Borders hospital. Killed like 22 people. And what's in a name? You might be surprised. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. Stay with us. Back in a flash. Click on your device to hear us anytime and anywhere. ProgressiveRadioNetwork.com, your home for news and information. Hi, I'm Sandy Leon Best, host of Political Analysis. Welcome to the 21st century where the corporate propaganda machine works 24-7 to manufacture your reality. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Political Analysis challenges the corporate narrative with independent news, analysis, and passionate conversations on the most critical issues of our time. Don't let the corporate echo machine become your truth. Tune in live to Political Analysis or visit the archives at prn.fm. If you like the show, rate us in iTunes. The Progressive Radio Network is moving forward, and we hope you are coming with us. Carrie Harrison with you, inviting you to join me on The Smart Show every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're not able to catch me live, you can go to the archives at prn.fm or harrison.fm. Don't forget, it's impeccable behavior to rate the show on iTunes. We come to you each Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, live from Hollywood, where we bring on the movers and shakers, whistleblowers, and muckrakers. There's nothing like it anywhere else, and it's here on prn.fm. If you like a smart show, then join me, Carrie Harrison. It's Harrison on the Progressive Radio Network. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. This is PRN, the comprehensive news source for the world's progressive community. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us.
We're back. It's 24 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. And uh, we're just talking about the news of the day. Our number is 888-874-4888. You don't have to talk about anything I've been talking about. You don't have to talk about Ben Carson or the Oregon Massacre or even fantasy football. Whatever's on your mind, just give me a buzz. Now, this is a tragic and apparently a story that should not have happened. The American commander in Afghanistan now believes that U.S. troops probably did not follow their own rules in calling in the airstrike that decimated the Doctors Without Borders Hospital when no American and Afghan troops were in extreme danger. According to the New York Times, under the rules, Airstrikes are authorized to kill terrorists, protect American troops, and help Afghans who request support in battle, like those in Kunduz, which was recently taken over by the Taliban, that can change the military landscape. The idea is to give troops leeway but keep Americans out of daily open-ended combat. Well, it did that, but in the process, they blew up a hospital. Now, the latest is President Obama apologized. Personally, the Doctors Without Borders for this airstrike. And I'm assuming that the families of those who died will probably be compensated in some way. But this is the unintended consequence of America's continuing military presence in Afghanistan. You know, and and look... A lot of people thought Afghanistan was the just war when it first started. You remember that back in 2001? Uh, even some people who disagreed with Iraq thought Afghanistan was cool. And now all these years later, we're still there. We're still using lethal weaponry. And, you know, you don't even get anything from the government that says, well, you know, we're making progress. We're beating back the Taliban, or at least we're running them even, or whatever. The special forces operation involved in this airstrike apparently did not have, quote, eyes on, that is, were unable to positively identify the area to be attacked to confirm it was a legitimate target before calling in that airstrike. Now, there are those who would make the argument that whoever was responsible for that ought to face some sort of criminal charges. After all, 22 people died. 22! That's ridiculous. And you didn't know? You couldn't confirm that it was a legitimate target? Then don't hit it until you get the proper confirmation. And even then, I mean... I. You know, I'm not a military-type guy, even though I went to military school for three years. I just, I don't like the idea of bombing people. You know, I mean, military people, you can say that's one thing. But it seems as though too often, certainly in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then probably in Libya as well, civilians get killed. Now, regardless of what the deal was here, the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, General John Campbell, said 
He told the Senate committee yesterday that the strike was ultimately the result of, quote, a U.S. decision made within the U.S. chain of command. He took responsibility for it. He said that it was in response to an Afghan call for help. Uh, I wonder where that call for help came from. I hope they verified that. Uh, if U.S. troops didn't follow the rules, it's not clear why or how far up the chain of command the decision to allow the strike was made. Now, what sometimes, I won't say always, but sometimes ends up happening in these kind of situations is they find one guy. It's usually a guy, but they find one guy who they can make the scapegoat and bam, it's your fault. You're the one that's responsible. I think it's larger than that. I, I just, I, and it's not just, you know, first of all, we ought to make clear Doctors Without Borders does some extraordinary work trying to keep people who have been blown apart by war, trying to put them back together again, trying to make them whole. And for them to be hit this way, is a double outrage as far as I'm concerned. Now, you know, I'm not Pollyannish enough to think that somebody somewhere, least of all the president, would jump up and say, you know what, we're going to suspend these strikes until we get our act together better. Or worse yet, we're getting the hell out. And we're not going to strike anything anymore. Uh, I don't know. Now, the other thing is, by the way, that this attack lasted for a half hour. A half hour. It killed 22 patients and hospital staff. Now, the other part of this is that the military's narrative of what exactly took place, I mean, this guy Campbell, you know, this is a, a, a rare moment of candor coming from the commander in Afghanistan. I salute him for that. But before he spoke out, the narrative of what exactly took place and why it took place and how it took place was, how best to put this, somewhat fungible. Well, well, and you never want to see that. You never want to see it. You never want to hear it. Uh, And this happened this past Saturday. It is... uh, Doctors Without Borders says it was a war crime. I don't know. Are you all down with that? You can call me and tell me. 888-874-4888-888-874-4888. Now, General Campbell apparently didn't go into great detail in front of that Senate committee about exactly what did go on that led to this strike. Sooner or later, we're going to need some kind of explanation because it's done in our name. I hate to say it. It's done in our name. Here's a story that kind of, I think a lot of people know, but they don't want to necessarily admit it. There's a new study that says the following. 
Americans draw racist conclusions about people they've never met just by learning their names. This was a study that was published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior. And the researchers who conducted the study said they were disgusted by their own findings. The study asked subjects to describe their feelings about imaginary characters with stereotypical white names, such as Connor and Wyatt, and stereotypical black names, such as Jamal and Deshaun. And the lead author, Colin Holbrook, who's an anthropologist at UCLA, said, I've never been so disgusted with my own data. Apparently, this is what they did. Test subjects, and I don't know how many of them there were, but they were read a short story about a man whether either with either a stereotypical white name or black name, being bumped at a bar and then verbally berated. Test subjects were then asked to describe what they imagined that man to look like and what he did in res- uh, response to that contact and verbal assault. According to Holbrook, quote, a character with a black-sounding name was assumed to be physically larger, more prone to aggression, and lower in status than a character with a white-sounding name. They also, by the way, performed similar comparisons with Latino and East Asian names, with participants saying members of the former group, that's Latinos, were also larger, more violent, and lower in socioeconomic status. Now, that's deep. You know, they've done studies before where, uh, you know, they've, they've done either online job applications or other kinds of things where they use identifiably black names like Jamal, like Deshaun, like some of these things. And back in the day when they used to do this, the results would say to people, well, you know, black folks, you've got to stop naming your kids this stuff or you're going to handicap them in the rest of their lives, which, of course, is the wrong answer. People should, be, should feel free to name their children any doggone thing they want now. There are some names I would say, like, what were you thinking? But Jamal isn't one of them. You know, uh, there are some others that are, are a little, like, what? But you see that when people think through someone's first name alone, when they conclude that that person is black, they have a certain set of assumptions. And in human resource offices, at times, those assumptions keep a black person who would otherwise qualify for a job out of a job. In other words, you got two applicants with with relatively equal credentials. One's named Jamal and one's named Connor. Connor gets the gig because he don't sound black. Now, is the answer to all this? to start calling your kids something else? I don't think so. I really don't think so. But something to think about. Something, something, and, and again, black folks do not get this twisted. No one is saying you should avoid calling your child certain names or name your child something that sounds white so they'll have a leg up in life because they'll figure some other way if they have these assumptions. Trust me on that. They'll figure another way. Now, this coming weekend, 
Muslims across America are bracing for a wave of anti-Islam rallies outside mosques. In August, the Facebook page appeared calling for a global rally for humanity outside mosques all over the world on Friday and Saturday. The event description claims humanity is attacked daily by radical Islam. And apparently, it's not, uh, you know, it, it hasn't gathered all that much steam. But groups in Georgia, Michigan, and Arizona, and other states, are mobilizing to protest. Uh, a protest in Dearborn, Michigan. Quote, and by the way, Dearborn's got a bunch of Muslims. Bunch of, uh, well, they got a large Arab population. I won't categorize them all by saying they're Muslims. Quote, as this invasion of Muslim colonization continues unchecked on American soil, we can only expect the same suffering now endured by Europe. Now that's, you know, a, pro- a, a similar page that was trying to rally people for a protest in South Carolina. And you'd figure they got something else to do with all that flooding that's going down there. But they call Islam an evil cult. And a uh, Kentucky-based group asks, now get this, fellow patriots, veterans, bikers, rednecks, and good old boys to join them outside a local Muslim community center along with supporters in other open-carry states. You see, this is, uh, this is the kind of thing that stokes fear, that promotes intimidation, and is fundamentally un-American. We're not supposed to be about squashing religions. Certainly, there are people who follow Islam that have done some bad things. There are are racists in this country who have done some bad things. You think any of these clowns are going to come out to protest some of the racism that was apparently at the root of the massacre in Oregon and the massacre in Charleston? Well, we know the massacre in Charleston, South Carolina and a number of other places across this country? Do you seriously think these same people would say an invasion of American racism continues unchecked on American soil? Of course not. I'm just being facetious. But it's just like, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Now, CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, which, by the way, is a very moderate group of people, moderate group of people. And they've told mosques across the country to take additional safety precautions. They say in a statement, the anti-Islam rally come at a time of increased hate-motivated crimes and bias incidents nationwide targeting persons and property associated or perceived to be associated with Islam and the American Muslim community. Now, I don't know the extent to which there's going to be, like, huge, humongous crowds at any of these rallies. There'll be some. See, because there are pockets of blind hate 
in this country. And you see from what their rhetoric is all about that there's not, you can't convince these folks that they're wrong. You can't convince these folks that it's wrong to condemn an entire religion. You can't. That's not what they're in the game for. You know, uh, it's, it's, and again, you know, uh, there were people who have been involved in the Islamic community in some, in some violent acts. You can't ignore that. But, you know, there's an awful lot of Christians that have been involved in violent acts too. So how about we tamp down the rhetoric and the nonsense and start trying to do something? And see, like, you know, with all these people running for president, you'd think there'd be one of them that would, like, try and take the lead on this. So, you know, we need to stop this. We need to cut the rhetoric, cut the nonsense. Some people think that this anti-Islam rhetoric and Islamophobia is a direct result of some of the statements that have been made about Islam by some of the Republican presidential candidates. I don't know whether that's true. I don't like to think that large numbers of people are that stupid because I know why politicians do it. Politicians do it because they're trying to reach a certain group of people that they hold come out and vote for them. That's what they do. Irresponsible, ridiculous, nonsensical, all of the above. It's not going to stop them from doing it, though, because that's what they do. And speaking of politicians, it looks as though And I didn't know they were talking about spending this kind of money. The Koch brothers are looking to spend a billion dollars on, quote, the conservative agenda. You know, and I say the conservative agenda, I mean, it's in this article. But, you know, they, they, you know, people talk about the homosexual agenda and this agenda and that agenda. Black Lives Matter's agenda. Well, the Koch brothers are putting their money where their mouth is. And it looks as though, at least according to this one article, like they're really starting to like Marco Rubio. You remember him, senator from Florida? He's running for president. He's, like, been moving on up incrementally. I think he's, like, third or fourth behind Trump, Carson. I think he may be third at this point. One never knows. But I do know this. Uh. They're saying that uh, Rubio is now in line to get some of this money on account of Scott Walker is out of the race. Now, Scott Walker ran out of money, but apparently the Koch brothers were not that enamored of Scott Walker that they would fill his coffers so he could keep running. One insider says, told the Daily News, it shows how pragmatic they are. They are not going to back a loser. They saw their horse couldn't make it around the track and started looking for other options. That was Scott Walker. Uh, Apparently, at whatever meeting where all this came up, they liked Carly Fiorina. They didn't talk about Donald Trump. And one of the cokes was dismissive when the name Jeb Bush was brought. Jeb Bush may be the Titanic at this point. I got to tell you, he may be completely 
on his way out the door. Now, uh, we've got a couple other stories and not a whole lot of time. Russia is fire, firing cruise missiles in Syria. Bashar al-Assad is beginning a ground attack. Now, you know, the Russians got a perfect cover for this. Now, we're going after ISIS. I don't know if they are or not. But the United States government's response to these airstrikes, especially after they hit a doctor's without borders hospital in Afghanistan, has been surprisingly muted or maybe unsurprisingly muted. Uh, but the Russians are in it to win it at this point. They're in it to back Assad and keep him in place and in power. Something the United States has been trying to change for, God, how many, what has it been, three, four years now? Uh, And the Russians are teaming with the Syrians on this. (coughs) Who knows how that's going to turn out and how the United States at the end of the day is going to respond. Apparently, they are, the Russians, hitting targets that are part of the al-Nusra front and an affiliate of al-Qaeda. They don't say about ISIS, but it seems like that's where they're going. Finally, and I do mean finally, uh, you know, the the, uh, the Blasio-Cuomo war has now gone into a new phase. You know, they argue about charter schools. They argued about the legionnaires. They've been arguing about everything. Well, now they're arguing about funding for the subways. And the governor and the MTA whose board he appoints in large measure, has said, look, the city needs to cough up more dough. De Blasio, of course, says, hey, we contributed enough already. This is interesting to me only because it was a while ago when de Blasio was running for mayor that uh, I had the privilege of hosting a candidate's forum uh, at the TWU, uh, at, no, it wasn't at the TWU, but it was sponsored by the TWU, the Transport Workers Union Local 100. Um, and it was interesting because I asked each of the candidates whether they would be willing to commit 1% of the city's budget to mass transit. None of them except one would commit to this. None of them, not de Blasio. Not Chris Quinn, none of them. The one person who would, and he was really, he kind of surprised people when he said it, was then city controller John Liu. He said, yeah, I'll pony up a, 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 a 1%, which is a lot more than what the city's contributing now. Anyway, time for me to get out of here. My thanks to Jesse. My thanks to each and every one of you who have been listening for the past hour. Thanks for indulging me. Stay tuned for all the great programming on the Progressive Radio Network. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am Mark Riley. We'll be back next Wednesday, God willing, and the creek don't rise. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead. 